Welcome to the Visegrad Insight podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Welcome back to the Visegrad Insight podcast. My name is Quincy Klut, Managing Editor of uh, Visegrad Insight. And next to me here in the studio is Wojciech Przybilski, who is our Editor-in-Chief. Another week in Central Europe. Um, as you know, we always have our weekly outlook, which is published on Mondays. And um, yeah, always a couple of interesting stories there. Uh, Wojciech, what uh, what sparked your interest uh, this week? Well, there are, there are many stories that, that that are dead ends in a way. There is dead end in Slovakia. Um, Prime Minister Matovic um, declared he would resign under certain conditions and several ministers are resigning as we speak. And of course, we've been following on that topic. Um, Viktor Orban tried to unite uh, other parties and, and you know form a, a group or, or become part of a group. But others are not so much interested in sharing uh, sharing their seats and and, uh, and the power in the parliament with him so so far he's unsuccessful uh, so some hard um, hard landing for for mr orban and his fidus MEPs. Uh, in um, in Czechia, the situation is still serious, and all across the all across the region, all V4 countries have altogether the highest mortality rate right now. So it's exactly the reverse of what we've seen last year. It's if if we look at the pandemic that has marked its uh, its one year last week, I believe, mm-hmm. um, then we can then we can clearly say that. The point of departure for Visegrad group countries with uh, very low numbers that were surprising globally. Uh, how how could how that could have been achieved? Is now exactly the opposite. It's it's one of the worst situations across the globe, and I guess we'll we'll have to live with that and through that, and then we'll we'll assess uh, how it happened. And in and in Poland, uh, speaking of V4 only, but today we're going to focus on on other countries as well of, of Eastern Europe. Uh, the situation is also well interesting at at some points there. There are corruption scandals. There is a transfer, very surprising transfer. One of the MPs uh, of the left joined the the, the governing coalition. Uh, a lady from uh, a female MP uh, switched from Vyosna, uh, which was supposed to be everything but peace um, or united right. And she joined, um, well, not the core of PIS, but the coalition partner, Jaroslav Govin, who is today in a hospital. He's, he's hospitalized because of COVID-19, and he's been under heavy attack from the center, from Mr. K- from Mr. Kaczynski and Mr. Jobro, um, uh, who, who tried to, uh, Mr. Kaczynski tried to, to k- take control over his uh, fraction, um, the agreement party. So that's a, that's that's a recap in brief, and but but lots of small details and no major ha- thing happening. Mm. Well, maybe one major thing uh, to point out is uh, is is Bulgaria. So we'll definitely talk more about that in a couple of weeks when the elections are actually taking place. But I just want to highlight maybe that uh, this week there will be a couple of very interesting pieces. If you want to understand what it is all about, uh, how how much Boyko Borisov should really feel. Uh, these elections and the possibility of, of becoming a fourth term prime minister, um, whether that's realistic or not, but also how, how
how it's perceived from a more European uh, context. And maybe a nice uh, little tidbit of news that uh, a spy ring was uh, disrupted this week in Bulgaria, which was uh, quite a surprising uh, news coming from a country that is usually not associated with uh, spies or or any... Oh, no, 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 come on. But they they are associated with spies. Yes, but I mean, a spy ring which has been disrupted. And uh, so we're we're talking here about a spy ring which has been put to a halt uh, a couple of weeks before in but the election. But it's not any spy ring. This is the Russian spy ring. And Bulgaria, throughout communism, has been the proxy of KGB in operations. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we remember the assassination, I mean, we're sitting in Warsaw, I'm Polish. How could I not miss that Bulgarian assassin who shot uh, John Paul II, the Pope? Uh, there, there, there were uh, close ties to Russia. And over, over the last years, they were also uh, often manifested and Bulgaria has been suspe- uh, suspected of, of close ties with, with Russia. So I really don't know yet what, what that signifies. And definitely that that is the piece of news from uh, broader Central Europe or, or the Three Seas Initiative countries, if that even exists. Um, that, uh, that, ele- that was electrifying and, and indeed deserves uh, more attention, especially as the elections are coming. We will see that, I mean, the predictions say that uh, Boyko Borisov is holding power and most likely if he enters a coalition with the parties that are, that are currently polling high, and these are far-right parties and populist parties. So um, the little improvement in terms of how, how Bulgaria is going to be governed. Um, but but this interesting situation and, and, and the context of this election uh, that you just mentioned will be also discussed uh, throughout our Visegrad Inside Breakfast, uh, special invitations only, um, only to those who subscribe for uh, for yearly subscriptions. So be quick if you want to join us on Monday. And um, and also, uh, and yeah, and you have to write us an email. It's not just uh, that you subscribe, but, but write us an email after you subscribe that you want to join. And uh, furthermore, um, uh, some some texts coming up from our fellows, uh, not only SPAS. Uh-huh. Yes, I see a method, Eva, uh, as I said, uh, taking more a European angle. Um, but that's maybe enough on, on Central Europe, larger Central Europe. Let's talk uh, Eastern Europe as well, uh, in particular, the Eastern Partnership. And uh, after the advertisement, we'll definitely have more. Um, but um, one interesting article I want to highlight as well from, from this week is uh, by uh, Thomas Lafitte, who is a journalist from uh, Courrier de l'Europe Centrale. So uh, he's looking, he's fo- closely following Hungarian, um, Hungarian politics. And uh, one thing he has noted in the, in the last years or last decade or so is a very good uh, blooming relationship between um, Hungary and Azerbaijan. Um, which uh, which is which he frames around our um, Eastern Partnership uh, report with uh, scenarios for for Eastern Europe, uh, the next decade, and uh, yes, it is quite significant. Uh, you would think that Hungarians who always talk about persecuted uh, Christians in the East would uh, maybe be keener to to have a strong relations with uh, Armenia, but what we see in practice is a relationship which is much more driven by pragmatic interests and where. 
Azerbaijan and uh, pipelines come into play. Um, Pragmatic or personal interests of the leader uh, of, of, of Hungary. Yes, so uh, definitely um, if you're if you're interested more in this uh, pragmatism and how it also fits within a, uh, a larger uh, political uh, context but also within sort of the EU then uh, I definitely recommend you to take a look at this article and some more um, things we're publishing on, on Eastern Partnership this week. All right, we'll be back in a, in a moment after a break. Eastern European Future Scenarios for the Eastern Partnership 2030 is a special scenario-based report we published last year in cooperation with the German Marshall Fund of the United States and the Black Sea Trust. If you want to read more about this report and also some recent analysis and opinion on this subject, go to our website, physicrapinside.eu slash EAP2030. Right, so um, exactly a year ago, we have published the report um, together with the German Marshall Fund, uh, Black Sea Trust um, uh, sponsored, and together with experts and, and uh, think tankers from uh, Central European and Eastern Partnership countries and, and several more who consulted on the final report, a very differentiated view um, uh, showing a diversity of, of perspectives and trends existing and developing in Eastern Partnership countries, but also reflecting on where this uh, framework of the European uh, Union, uh, the, related to the six countries uh, to the east of, of, of Europe, European Union, are um, how this framework is working and how it um, it has developed over the last 10 years with projections for the ne next 10 years to come. Our scenarios uh, importantly highlighted um, four possibilities of, of how the Eastern Partnership may develop. They, uh, they explore uh, the consequences of so-called pragmatic integration in which uh, the trajectory set forth by um, by the policies of um, economic integration, political association, are leading some of the countries at the verge of accession in the EU in the next 10 years, while leaving several others at the peripheries of, of this process and hence uh, posing questions about the future of, uh, of the framework. Then the second, uh, second scenario, uh, Russian hegemony revisited explains what might happen should Russia, despite its um, feebling and, and, and you know, decreasing power and influence on, uh, on in the region, decides for an intervention, a thought being now uh, speculated among expert circles, but also some, some good points have been brought up by, uh, by political articles, I think, uh, this week and senior analysts on the, on the subject and what that would mean for the Eastern Partnership in the, in the next 10 years, uh, freezing some and, and even uh, hardening uh, or, or, or fastening the line on which uh, some others are towards the integration and, and association. Then there is a EU pivot towards Moscow um, in the unlikely but plausible scenario when, uh, because of a possible change in Moscow, EU wants to embrace Russia as the main, uh, as the main uh, big and important partner. 
and therefore puts in the shade uh, the, the the future of relationship of the countries of Eastern Partnership. That is really unlikely, but still possible to imagine, since again this is uh, bringing about a a change of leadership in Russia, something everybody is now at least in the background uh, considering, and also showing that there are in there are some people in Europe, like uh, Mr. Borrell has demonstrated. Uh, who who want uh, to to build a new relationship even with the current leadership of Russia, and finally the third scenario, very much developing also in the present, a scenario of um, a civic emancipation that explains and translates uh, the the trends that we see in the in the society across six countries of Eastern Partnership, and, and frankly. Uh, global uh, trends that are only projected, they are only manifested in in the region, and um, and shows the uh, the incredible civil society resilience in the countries that are otherwise not fully democratic or not democratic at all. Um, speaking of Belarus, or or thinking about the recent wars in, yeah, especially um, Azerbaijan aggression on Nagorno Karabakh. So those four scenarios. Uh, laid out paths for the next 10 years and definitely laid out path for Visegrad and uh, Visegrad Insight and, and our partners uh, for discussion that we began over two years ago. But in the course of the last year, um, so many things have happened. Uh, Belarus, uh, the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, the developments in Moldova, and also silent but important um, developments in in Ukraine or or in Georgia, very recent political events uh, that we decided exactly a year after the report has been launched and exactly a year into the pandemic to um, to invite uh, a formidable uh, group of experts, uh, senior diplomats, and um, uh, people from the European Commission to reflect back on the report and uh, and think through with us what what other scenarios might result or or how the the existing scenarios might be of use in their daily work and and here we present you a couple of sound bites from those discussions that were held under the so-called uh, Eastern Partnership 2030 week that we have organized together with the German Marshall Fund, the Black Sea Trust, and uh, together with partners who participate in the project. And next to and next to that, I have to say, uh, there were a lot of uh, events organized by our uh, extended circle of partners in this project in in Azerbaijan, in uh, in Armenia, in. Uh, Ukraine, Moldova, in Belarus, uh, also our colleagues from AMO, uh, Czech Republic, organized a, uh, a discussion themed on on the Eastern Partnership scenarios and and with our um, in our par in partnership with us. So there was a lot happening last week. There is still a lot to be published in the next two weeks. So stay tuned and, and check our website for Eastern Partnership 2030. Uh, you can go to our website visegradinside.eu/eap. 2030-2030 and um, you can read all these texts which are which are featured there and download the report and tell, tell us what you think and of course use that most importantly in your uh, analysis and, and, and planning and daily work and as we hear from the testimonies and from soundbites of, of some of people present last week 
that was really a useful uh, exercise for them looking back in the in the last year when um, when um, the, the certain I mean certainty has been lost and and people started to ask many questions let's now listen to a couple of sound bites uh, from the discussions we held last week we start with Vasilis Maragas who is the head of the European neighborhood policy in Armenia Azerbaijan and Belarus uh, part of the European Commission Russia it's a challenge on its own. Russia presents, let's say, some opportunities, but actually many, many challenges right now. Anna Westerholm is the ambassador for the Eastern Partnership at the Ministry for Foreign Affairs of Sweden. Um, I would say that my new reading of these four scenarios leads me to, to, to the conclusion that we today we will see a little bit of all four. So in a fifth scenario, if you want to write that, you need, I, I would ask you to actually pick bits and pieces of all the four. Next up is Thomas Dewal, who's a senior fellow with Carnegie Europe. What we can say with confidence is that the landscape of the South Caucasus and of the Karabakh uh, situation has been dramatically reshaped. Now we listen to Katrina Piscikova, who's an associate professor at the Scuola Superiore Santa Anna in Italy. You know, uh, access to uh, unbiased scientific information. This is something, again, that I think uh, um, is a common problem across six countries. This is Jörg Forbrick, who's a senior fellow and director for Central and Eastern Europe at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Whether there are significant developments that sort of uh, make one or another scenario perhaps more likely uh, require adjustments, COVID in particular, but not only. Uh, so I wanted to uh, sort of very quickly go through the four scenarios at this stage, perhaps also as a reminder uh, of what they uh, what they were uh, for those who may not be as familiar with. Now we hear Jerzy Pomianowski, who's executive director for the European Endowment for Democracy. What I want to say is also that uh, there are challenges that remain the same. So we have new opportunities, but they are the same, the same challenges. We listen to Arleta Boyka, who's a journalist and former TVP correspondent in Russia and Ukraine. We cannot say about uh, uh, Eastern countries, Eastern partnership countries as a whole because they are very different they, they are at war as uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia so if you could say which of these countries uh, have at least uh, somehow in some uh, aspects positive image and which have uh, negative image now you hear Philip Fritz who is wealth correspondent based in Warsaw aesthetically um, there is a very heavy Soviet angle. I'm not saying that that's good, I'm just saying it is like that, right? So if you report on Ukraine, for example, or even Georgia, right? Um, you quite often see pictures or images of old babushkas or Soviet-style housing blocks and so on and so forth. David Kramer is a senior fellow at Florida International University. Um, you know, the inspiration that I think the people of Belarus provide to people in Hong Kong or, or in the United States um, is amazing. Um, and, and I don't think there's enough attention to uh, the courage of the people in these countries um, and to the, the challenges that they try to overcome on a daily basis. A lot of the attention is focused on sort of the, the crisis of the moment. And, and unfortunately, there's been a few of those of late. 
We hear from Ambassador Mirasun from the Embassy of the Republic of Korea in Poland. Whatever happens in, in on the on the Korean Peninsula has a direct impact on the Russia, Russia's foreign policy toward Eastern Partnership countries, VIFA countries, and EU altogether. From the European Institute for Security Studies, we hear Stanislav Sekriero, who is a senior analyst. The same goes for restarting the economic growth. Uh, I know that there is active communication between EU and uh, Eastern Partnership countries in terms of uh, scoping effort, what these uh, countries need in terms of economic uh, reconstruction and uh, revival. From Armenia, we hear Richard Geragosian, who is the director of the Regional Studies Center based in Yerevan. The real threat, however, the risk of renewed fighting, of instability, is over the medium to long term. Anna Zametz is a freelance journalist and media communication specialist. Uh, do you see any place for basically the men's group to play a significant and relevant We hear now uh, Zaur Gasimov, who is a senior research fellow at the University of Bonn in Germany. The 90s and now again. So uh, we should really mobilize all of our entire our European experience. And we have, uh, we have an experience in that. And finally, we listen to Kerry Longhurst, who is a Jean Monnet professor at Collegium Civitas based in Warsaw. And what about Moldova? You know, should Moldova be hitched onto the EU membership cart um, rather than remaining an Eastern Partnership country? And what do you think about the future of Eastern Europe? Send us your thoughts. Contact at visegradinside.eu.